welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. On today's episode, writer and activist Dean Spade joins us for a conversation all about liberating our relationships from patriarchal and capitalist understandings of connection. Together, we talk about building community outside of the nuclear model, choosing to be uncomfortable in order to live more, and feeling powerless to jealousy. Y'all, this episode is ripe with ideas to chew on and to think about. I think one of the big things that I'm taking away from this conversation with Dean is just the reality that this is a long journey, right? Society gives us so many problematic notions and scripts of what it means to be in connection. And as we start to process that and see those things, there's a lot of shame and guilt that can come up in terms of feeling bad for engaging or not being aware or never feeling like you've figured it out completely. And I think that's part of the journey, right? In many ways, we are fish living in the water that is patriarchy, and sometimes it's hard to even see that because it's just the air that we breathe, right? And so in that, having compassion for yourself and for the multiple ways that all of us are going to mess up and all of us are going to fall flat on our face because that is what it means to be human. And in that, I want to invite you to have curiosity as Dean and I talk about the multiple ways that society has constructed what it means to be in connection, just asking yourself, are these practices that I have been engaging, are these practices that I want to continue to engage in? A lot of our conversation was also about the autonomy that we all have to pause and reflect and to process through the emotions that come up and maybe even recognizing the patterns that we continually fall into and having that awareness to realize we can choose something different. And that's one of the beautiful things that also makes us human, right? Is we fail, we mess up, and also we have the opportunity to keep growing and to keep deciding what things are in alignment with your values and what things are going to bring you joy and reduce harm and bring more love to the people around you. I hope you all really enjoy today's episode with Dean and Find yourself chewing on some ideas for your own relationships today. Y'all, tune in. Hello, dear listener. Before we hear a word from today's sponsor, I wanted to invite you to contribute to the first study on relationship anarchy. If you are a relationship anarchist, I would love to hear your perspective on a couple of short questions that I have linked below in the show notes. My doctoral dissertation was the first study on relationship anarchy, and I'm continuing this research through the survey below, and there's also the option, if you would like, to join me on the podcast to explore a live conversation that will be shared with all of the Modern Anarchy community. Completely optional, whether you do just the survey or looking to join me on the show, please click that link below, share it with all of your relationship anarchist friends, and I look forward to sharing the results from this research study with you sometime in the future. I'm sending you all my love, and now a word from today's sponsor. So 
then is there anywhere you want to start this conversation or just dive into it? Anywhere you want to start. Okay. Well, then how would you introduce yourself first before we get into all the fun, juicy conversations? Yeah. Uh, I live in Seattle. I uh, My day, day job, paid job is that I'm a professor um, and my life work is about you know, this question of like, how do people make transformative change and what are the obstacles that get in the way and what are the counter moves of our opposition? And so I spend a lot of my time like just studying like what social movements have done and are doing and then being part of social movements to end police, prisons, borders, patriarchy, war, et cetera. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know we were talking a little bit earlier about how all of that relates to the new book that you're writing coming out. Could you tell me more about that? Yeah. Yeah. So um, for probably like seven years, I've been working on what I first thought was one big book that was just kind of like related to how, you know, being in movements myself for the last 25 years, you know, you kind of see um, like these patterns, like this kind of conflict we get into it again and again, the ways we sort of wreck ourselves, like the kinds of like, you know, ranging from people overworking people, struggling with accountability be between each other um, within organizations, uh, organizations like breaking down because people have uh, romantic relationships that are like, you know, that blow up in these ways or are unethical in their dating practices with each other, like kind of the same problems over and over again. So mm -hmm. for me, navigating that stuff on my own, like I've, I've also spent the last you know, 25 or 30 years, like trying to, you know, work on myself, trying to live my values, trying to figure out why I do weird sideways stuff or why I end up in weird, difficult conflicts or what's gone on in my own dating life or in my own relationships with collaborators. And so I wanted to write something that was kind of like for people struggling with that stuff who also feel really alienated by like the general self-help literature, which is like, you know, like self-help books, that whole literature is like really like capitalist. It's racist, it's heteronormative, it's, you know, focused on monogamy is often like get rich and skinny in 30 days. Like that's kind of its promise. Mm -hmm. And so a lot is lost. Like there's, I can't, a lot of the thing, a lot of the tools I've tried to use and gotten something out of, I can't actually recommend to others because they're just like so fraught. Um, mm -hmm. And so basically the project is, was like, could I capture some of the things I think are useful and interesting, but put them in a more radical framework? Like, can we talk about how we overwork in our movement orgs? But acknowledge that that capitalism, white supremacy, and ableism are are surrounding that. That's not just because like we're bad workaholics at an individual level. Or can we talk about the dynamics um, around like romance and sex and the romance myth in our lives in a way that actually is feminist and like you know acknowledges this is structural. And so, so yeah, basically I I'm working the that project for a while and it became so long that it's actually multiple books now. And the first one that that I kind of broke off, the first chunk that I broke off that I think will be in the world first is about like sex, dating, romance, friendship, like some of those common um, patterns that we see in ourselves and our friends and like some like tools that can be useful for dealing with them. And I've done a couple webinars with a little bit of the content in the last couple of mm -hmm. years with um, Fireweed Collective and they're online um that they both have like a theme around the romance with it with, with like titles around that and one of them is about like the cycle of romance like the, the way in which like we meet people and then we like the complex things that happen that cause us to kind of idealize and project upon them that they're like going to basically meet our unmet childhood desire for love and recognition and then the ways in which as we advance with people we tend to like it can tends to shift and then we like feel a lot of like 
um, you know, we're not aware of this, we feel a lot of like blame and criticism towards people. So it's just kind of like a typical cycle of like romance followed by conflict that happens again and again in people's mm. dating lives. And that and that I also think you can have that in a friendship or with an organization and the ways yeah. in which when we're not conscious of the pattern, we can really like wreak a lot of havoc, havoc on each other and, and on groups we're in because mm-hmm. it's like, you're the best thing in the world. And then mm. later on, like, you're the worst thing, you're my enemy. Um, yeah. So yeah, so that's just like one example of uh, like you know one of the small ideas in the book that I made that into a webinar I think around Valentine's Day last year for mm-hmm. yeah twenty twenty two for for fireweed, mm-hmm. um, but yeah that project is I think yeah relevant to to your podcast uh, themes. Yes, absolutely. Because I think part of what you were talking about was the fact that this doesn't just happen in our romantic relationships, right? We have multiple relationships in our lives, and these same patterns can play out in and across all of them right and what i'm hearing is like this you know idealization of a partner of a company of any sort of entity and not really taking in the full complexities of what it means to be human and to be connected yeah i mean i think that it's true that a lot of these patterns we can play out in any relationship but it is also fascinating to me that a lot of people i know who are like really right on in the world are not right on in their dating and sexual practices. Like there is something interesting about how it gets us where we live and we are particularly possibly reactive or unprincipled, like people who are like otherwise able to live their principles a little bit more. And so that's like, I think one of the questions that that mobilizes the book, it's like, what is it that happens to us where we kind of like, you know, or you're like, love your friend and you're like, God, this person's so amazing. They're so amazing the work we do together. And then wow, the way they talked to their date or like the choices they just made about how they ended that relationship or the ways that they are doing their flirting in this group we're all in that are really seem like, you know, not uh, quite like good for the group dynamics or or whatever. I think that there's something interesting about uh, what sex, love and dating gets at in our deepest um, like wounds that uh, requires, I, just to me, I, and then one of the ways I talk about in the book is just like, this is just like, if you're going to have like a mushroom trip, like you got to be like, okay, I'm going to take these mushrooms. I shouldn't drive the car. You know, I, maybe I shouldn't cut things with sharp knives. Like what, you know, like, to, like sure. we need like to <laughs> yeah. put a, like a care, like a, it's kind mm. of like, we need to like do some care. Like we've been given a pretty bad, bad set of scripts from the culture about how to do sex, love and dating. And we, most of us have different kinds of damage from our family or caregiving experience that are somehow showing up. So like, what do I want to study? Who have, what kind of support system do I want to have? Like, mm-hmm. how do I want to like rethink and, and relearn? And also like when I actually launch into something like, you know, falling in love or initiating a new sexual relationship or going into like, you know, kind of a sex haze, which a lot of us have that experience when we start like an intense new sexual or kink relationship, like how am I going to like, you know, take care of myself and like ha- figure out like what would my sober self say would be good boundaries before I go on this bender, which is totally fun and beautiful and creative and interesting and worth doing. But like, is there anything I want to have in place? Like, Hey Dean, like don't forget to sleep sometimes or make sure you stay in touch with your friends and don't get isolated. Or, you know, these are, I'm going to, I could be, I'm going to have this curfew or I'm going to like kind of limit how often I see this person. So it doesn't become my whole life or like whatever, like based on what I've noticed, I do that kind of goes sideways, you know, just thinking about like this stuff as actually, you know, pretty dangerous. Like the person most likely to kill you is someone you date. Like there's, there's, this is, it's, you know, it's heavy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so just being like, I pro- everybody acts pretty weird in this realm. I probably do too. Mm-hmm. What what am I willing to notice about that? What am I? How frank am I willing to be about that? What kind of support system do I need? Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you related it back to you know mushrooms and them 
the set and setting, right? I think we forget how much of a drug love really can be, right? Like all of the tons of neurochemicals that are going through your body that do put you in a different headspace. I mean, like this is an altering of our biological, physiological chemistry. So yes. And I think it's so hard when there aren't narratives of how to do this. So you fall in love with someone and all of a sudden you're projecting out a whole life ahead of you. And what that life is going to look like is based on the models that we see in society and media, all these pieces. And to try and construct a different world is so difficult when you don't have an example of how to do that. What sort of things do you need to do to protect that dream life that you're trying to build that's in line with your values? It's, it's tricky. Yeah, and what do you even want? I mean, I think this is very similar to like from my experience of being trans is that like I couldn't have become like a queer and trans person if there weren't other queer and trans people. So I could like to create space by just being their like freaky, amazing, gorgeous selves. Where I was like, oh my God, I can be that weird way. I can be that weird. Like we we we're social beings, like we need yep. each other. And so I think that's similar with relationships, like being able to find out that there are other ways to have experience of family or that, or that you can, you can have like a very intense love relationship with somebody and decide not to blend them with your friends or family. Or you can decide not to like, you don't have, you know, or you can decide you never want to live with anybody. Or you can live with someone and then decide you don't want to live together anymore. And it doesn't mean you're de-escalating the relationship or just like these, you know, you know, you can, you can really, really, really care and love somebody without being monogamous with them. I mean, these basic ideas that are yes. just like actually really radical and people mm -hmm. have just been told, you know, the relationship escalator, people have been told like, these are the markers of connection. And then if you're not into them, if that doesn't feel right to you, you can be so easily peer pressured to do that because your lover can be like, if you really love me, you do these things. Look at our entire society says so. And all of your friends agree. If you really yep. love them, you do these things. Like, yep. so we need those containers so much you know i uh i live with like in this queer family structure where i have like these two like non-blood sisters my who are like a couple and they have these two kids who are my nephews and we planned mm -hmm. this whole family structure together and we all live together me and my boyfriend and them and and that even that like so many people i meet are just like oh my god that's what i want i want to be able to like mm. not be a parent but live with kids and or i want to be able to be a parent but have there be a lot of adults so i don't have to be you know um overburdened in the way parenting is and like the nuclear family in our society which even most queer people end up falling into like just having each other as models like just having i noticed when I, when people find out how we live like that it's like a relief to them that there might even be that mm. option because they don't they haven't actually met anyone who's doing it even if they maybe kind of wanted or thought of it you know like that's just a basic example and i think it's even more complex when you get into like how terrified people are of jealousy and of change that no relationships are permanent all, like when you know with all the levels of talking about open relationships and, and yes sexuality. yes absolutely i feel like part of this is the fact that we are lacking community so much so in our relational worlds at least where we're at currently with the you know patriarchal influences that created marriage property the idea of the nuclear family and then that sort of system and we're starting to see how that's not working Right. And so now we're in this state of trying to find like how to relate and create community in a way that allows us to be free and all of our wondrous selves. But you're so right. There aren't examples for how to do that. I would love if you could talk to me then a little bit about like what you do and how you did that. Right. If this is something that people really find to be inspiring in a model, I'd love to share that in the space. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the things that are most important for me in my own practice, like friendship is the most important thing in my life. Like I 
I personally believe that friendship is like the most liberated relational space in our society because love and family relationships, like sexual love and family relationships are so brought, like are just so weighted and, um, and people are so reactive in them. And friendship is the place where I've found myself most likely to be able to give and receive like honest feedback and really grow, like have friends be mm. like, Hey, that's what you're doing isn't working or it's affecting me in this way. And actually here are the big change. Like I just noticed that again and again. And that also has happened to me and family and sex and being relationships. But I really think that friendship is like also like kind of a weird subversive thing in our society. Like the kind of like straight conservative culture that I grew up around in rural Virginia in the eighties was like I thought there was an idea that like it was almost like you had friends in high school and then you got married and then you hung out with your spouse and their blood family and your blood family and that was it forever like friendship was almost like a sign of immaturity like people didn't like a lot of and I think in general you know, there's lots of uh, statistics about how isolated people are in the U.S. and how most people have like a single confidant and people mm. talk about like you know inside a lot of people are like kind of stuck in a community that's just them and their date if they have a date like and that's just so unhealthy and brutal so for me like you know, and that this has been a conflict in a lot of my relationships. Like I've had, um, you know, as I mentioned, I'm in this like queer family, which includes other people as well, so people I live with. And I've always prioritized, you know, ever since, you know, we've been doing this since our 20s, you know, um, these kids are now teenagers. And we, although we didn't always live together and we had to travel to be together. And so I spent all my, you know, all, any vacation time I had from my job or whatever, I always was going to see these people and be in this group. And I had dates who were like, wait, I'm your boyfriend. Why, why, are, why aren't you spending all your vacation time with me? And I'm like, because this is what I do. Like, this is like, this is my priority. And just, you know, having even that conflict around like, like, yeah, I don't, boyfriend isn't, isn't more important to me than I have many commitments. And like, maybe if certain boyfriends would be invited to be part of that as well, but like, that's not like, you know, just the assumption that like your date will be your number one and only, and you need to prove all the time that they're more important by ditching your friends or whatever, as if friend is like a lesser thing, which for me, it's been like central also because I, you know, haven't had a lot of blood family and was a foster kid and all these things like friendship is like literally been my lifeline. Um, So I think that's one big part of my practice. One thing I'll say about like my open relationship practice that I think has been a really useful learning is like, in general, I've been, I've been like not into like rules. Like I've noticed how people use like a lot of rules to control each other and Mm -hmm. to criticize each other. Like, you know, to, to be like, like rules can be a space in which inevitably people do some small violation. And then it's like a chance for me to take out all of my jealousy and control issues by being like, you are one minute late. You know what I mean? Like the way that I practice is not rules centered. Although like, there's a couple like guidelines or things that I like that are on on deck with me with some people or whatever that we prefer and I think one thing that has been a really beautiful practice for me has just been like the point of these guidelines is not that they're rules so like yeah it's okay if you mess it up it's okay if you if you if you mess it up it means that either it doesn't work for you or like oh something went on like it's not about no it's never about anyone getting in trouble I'll give an example which is that like I told my boyfriend I would I was going to go make, I was having a phone call with another lover and I was going to come back and be like, meet him in bed by 1130. And then I stayed on the phone till midnight. And he was like, oh, that was kind of a bummer. And I was like, yeah, I, that was a bummer. Like, I don't need to do that. And I absolutely don't need to do that. But there was like, there's no, like, it wasn't like a vehicle for him to like feel everything that's hard about that he might ever feel about being in an open relationship. You know what I mean? It's just like, mm-hmm. or like, it's like we both, or, but there was a time in which there was something around a 
one of our guidelines that was like a little, like he did something that was like a little unclear around it. And it was so, it felt so good to me. Like, oh yeah, that's great. I don't care. Like just, it's, it's actually the pleasure is in, you know, the frame I like to use is like a contest of generosity. Like the pleasure yeah. is in like, like, a, like accepting, allowing, being like, do I need to be injured by this? Mm-hmm. And if I do feel, if I am feeling, if I'm struggling with jealousy or I'm struggling to say like, oh, I wish I had some more time with you or something like that. Like, like, let me take, let me like take, take that directly instead of taking that out sideways. Um, I, I just think this is big just because I just notice a lot of people in open relationships, like racking up resentments and stories and like it's you know you do we do need to figure out how to be trustworthy to each other that is a real thing trustworthiness is like a skill we need that in all areas of our lives so figuring out like hey am i downplaying stuff am i misleading anyone am i you know people do that stuff and like coming to i've been a person who's done that in my life like being able Mm -hmm. to figure out wait when when am i downplaying what what, what am i downplaying because i feel shame what's going on with that shame do i need to talk to anybody to a friend about that shame do i need to talk to my lover about that shame like Figuring out why I'm downplaying or where why I'm doing anything deceptive, these are very important things. So we need to become trustworthy. But we also like, and if we really think the other person is trustworthy, we gotta like work that out. Maybe we shouldn't be doing this with them, or maybe we need a different set of boundaries to protect us from what about that feels unsafe. But like the other piece is being like trusting and generous. Like actually, if I really believe in my own sexual freedom and the other person's, and I believe that they're on a path in their own like sexual expression and healing that is separate from mine and that is like beautiful and gets to develop like I need to not like live in judgment and mm-hmm. like not be looking for ways to get them in trouble I just noticed this a lot and I think that in other times in my life I, I struggled with like expressing my jealousy by kind of like getting feeling like I wanted to find a way someone else had done something wrong sure which I think makes sense if you feel you know your partner might feel insecure in that dynamic right of you're talking to a lover on the phone and then here is this time where you said you were going to be back at 11 30 you came back at 12 and if we don't feel secure enough in our relationship at that point you say you know I mean these thoughts don't come through consciously I feel like these are the unconscious thoughts that are running through that maybe we don't even realize of like well, clearly I'm not important to them. So they don't really care about me. Clearly that other person is way more important. And so then when you come back into the room, they say, well, why'd you do that? And using that rule against you as a way to kind of say, I feel insecure that you spent that time with that person. But the thing is like, it takes, I think the emotional awareness to recognize that feeling, then to pause and not to lash out through like passive aggression, whatever sort of tactics afterwards and say like, hey, I feel insecure because you said you'd be back by 1130 and it took more time and I feel like I'm not important to your world. Can we like talk about that so we come together to feel more secure in that? And I think like if you don't have those processes and that awareness, then it is going to come back in that way because inherently the dynamics can feel insecure in some ways when you start adding more people like that is a reality like where when you start to share to like feel secure and that takes like an extra level of communication vulnerability about how you're feeling in so many pieces so I think it it's a lot of work I feel like anyone who doesn't think that open relationships are a lot of work are misunderstanding what it means to truly really relate and be vulnerable with other people yeah I mean I think the thing you just described you know it's like come back in the room and the person's like hey that didn't feel good that you were half an hour late like I just think most people actually don't have any practice with forgiveness. I actually think it's incredibly rare in our society. People mostly build stories about each other. Your coworker, yeah. your family member, people are like, had, haven't had the experience of being like, most people are sort of not good at apologizing. 
So like it all comes together. You know, I think that's like a really like the real question of like, can someone say, hey, sorry, I did that. And can I let it go? Or am I holding yeah. on to it and looking for evidence of a pattern and making a pattern about it? Right. The thing about what you said about how, you know, when you are open and you're sharing, it is more insecure. Like, I think there's something really deep about that, like that, that desire to control, like that desire to, to own my partner or date or whatever lover to like, it's so intense, like deep capitalist white supremacy yes. stuff. Yes. And it's like, and it's really, you know, it really lives in me. I feel that. And I, and, and it's, for me, it was a decision, like, cause I've been in and out of monogamy at different points in my life. And mm-hmm. it was a really big decision to just be like, would I rather be uncomfortable in which way? Like both things mm-hmm. are a ton of work and both yes. things are uncomfortable. So I would rather be, would I rather be uncomfortable um, kind of knowing that we're like, to some degree, like limiting our sexuality and I'm like limiting some of the things that I'm curious about or want to express or learn or heal in that in order to have like kind of the peace of not having to, in my case, like feel jealous and or feel like I often also have feelings of like, am I doing something wrong? Am I doing something wrong? Am I doing mm-hmm. something wrong around being in a relationship? Like I just like assume I'm doing something wrong if I'm having a good time or whatever. Yeah. Time and, you know, strange stuff. I mean, I'm on this planet to like be alive. I do tons of things that are uncomfortable, right? Like I, I'm ex- I'm trans in the world. I'm radical. I, you know, like whatever. I, I yes. take I take certain risks. I've chosen to take for a really long time. I've chosen to to live more instead of be like safer, but in a smaller box. And it just it's like not to say that it's always pleasant. And I and I will say too that like you you mentioned like emotional awareness as being like part of it. Like I definitely think that like that is kind of the missing piece that leads to so much conflict in in our world and such relational problems. But like to me, you know, I have a strong relationship to meditation and the whole experience of what meditating is in my in my experience is like just being able to like notice what's going on like hey look what's going on like i'm having this reaction i'm having this kind of thought and like learning to do that more and more and so that there's like that like millimeter of critical distance between me and my emotion so i'm not just like i just had a feeling of jealousy now i need to yell at you it's like oh look a feeling of jealousy just went by do i need a hug like I, I, can i take care of this can i take care of myself in whatever feeling comes up not just be the feeling um and that i just think like in a society in which people are super distracted have almost no time to reflect or no time in solitude everyone's like in you know in their phones every minute that they're not actually at work or you know caring for someone like there's not a lot of people are not getting a chance to like have that kind of relationship to when emotions pop up like it's instead like let me get away from this by looking at instagram or you know using a substance or whatever we all shopping, whatever we all do to kind of get away from ourselves, which is now always available. And I worry about, about like how hard that makes challenging radical practices, like being in relationships. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. I am so with you. And I agree that a lot of this ties back to mindfulness of that ability to have enough space from the emotion, recognize that we're not our emotions and that we have the autonomy to decide how we want to show up, not invalidate the emotions, right? Like we never like ignore them. I think it's important to remember that these emotions that are coming up are pointing to something that you need or want. And like taking that moment to like sit with them of like, okay, like what is this emotion pointing me to that I'm craving? Like you said, do I need a hug? Do I need reassurance in this connection here? And I think another thing that at least I have struggled with was like this feeling that my most authentic self is actually 
feeling into those emotions like this sense of like romance and relating that like the way to show up is to actually like when that comes up feel it share it like all of that sort of stuff and like even taking a step back from that to recognize that like letting go of that full like emotions that come like come up like that is not authentic relating i think authentic relating comes back to mindfulness awareness of our thoughts and choosing how we want to show up in relationships in a way that doesn't invalidate our feelings and it allows for more connection. Yeah. I seem to always date people who don't experience a lot of jealousy mm. and I do experience a lot of jealousy. And yeah. so it's really easy for me to just feel like I'm a bad person. <laughs> you uh, know what I mean? Like yeah. I'm, I'm wounded, I'm flawed, I'm damaged. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I have these issues from my childhood, whatever. And my practice of course, is just to be like, yeah, Dean, you may always experience jealousy. Did you act like a dick to anyone? No, then it's fine. Like I, it's like my job is just to not act it out. And I yeah. don't, I think I actually think I, I, I feel like I'm doing a pretty good job of like not pointing it at people and instead either, you know, taking care of myself or seeing what, what helps me and relieves that by getting support from a friend or going swimming or whatever mm-hmm. it is to do, or sometimes talking to the person about it. If it's like, Hey, I want this kind of reassurance, but like, it's my responsibility. It's my feeling. It's my wound. And it's like, and to just be like kind to myself about it, because if I'm, I think when, when you try to suppress feelings, they do come out sideways. And that's when you're like giving someone some kind of like unnecessary criticism or being mm-hmm. withdrawn or numbing out or whatever. And I think like, you know, I want to like be actively in these things. And if I choose to do it this way, this includes the this set of feelings and that mm-hmm. I hope is a healing opportunity. And I have seen over time that by like, choosing to approach it with this kind of compassion and care and like kind of experimentalism has reduced it yeah which is like amazing like i didn't i wasn't sure that was possible you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then i think that's the security that can come through open relating right like it it is inherently insecure i think because of the malleability of the dynamics and the flow that is inherent to them but i think once you're doing that practice of you know, acknowledging where you're coming from, acknowledging the support that you can get from other people like that inherently becomes really secure in this beautiful, like flowing way that I really find. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, the thing you're saying too about like the fact that it's like less secure because it can change, like there's something about that, that I think I often am just like, yeah, this is reality. Like if I, if the people I date, were all dating other people or whatever, we like, it's possible that like, I'll be dating you and you'll meet someone and they're really compelling to you. And I see less of you like that actually may happen. You may even be like, decide to focus on them in such a way that we don't see each other anymore. Also a, even if you're monogamy, the relationships can end. We've all done that. Um, relationships can end period. They can, mm-hmm. they, um, they, things change, everything changes. Yep. So yep. you can't stop change. But also for me, this like politically, this is about this relationship where like the state form itself wants us to have relationships that are pretend to be permanent because the mm. state form itself pretends to be permanent. Like the, the idea of the nation state is that it is permanent, even though of course, you know, all countries start and end, but the story about permanence and that we should affix ourselves through marriage to the state and that we should, you know, and it's the whole fairy tale of like happily ever after, like that there should be kind of like an unchanging. And this is also, I think they like romance books and stuff. All of them are like, it's like, it's it's going to be like early romance and all of this hotness and it's going to be that way forever between these two people people find a lot of disappointment it's very painful because mm-hmm. disappointing and you know there's lots of conflict about that so like what if instead we actually noticed the reality which is that everything constantly changes and nothing is permanent especially in humans human emotions human relationships and we were like wow i am on this ride 
I, I just am. I don't get to not be on this ride where everything changes. So I'm going to like find out what there is for me on this ride. Like, wow, like what do I learn by the fact that I get to change? I don't have to pretend I'm only attracted to the one person I ever, you know, be since we met, I felt exactly the same way because I'm because actually that's not how it is. Or right. I don't have to pretend that nothing has shifted and grown. And also that can mean that things can deepen or widen. Like it's not it's not only loss that you're not mm-hmm. always in whatever it was when you first started. You know, like I think there's a I was talking to one of the people from Fireweed Collective after my Romance Myth webinar. And the person was saying that they feel like part of the romance myth is that that like relationships are not allowed to mature, that like it's supposed to always be just like it was in the first, you know, year or whatever long that period is for people. Right. And that that's so interesting. You know what I mean? That it's kind of like a stunted development when of course and I think part of what's in like my my book that I'm that I'm finishing now you know a lot of it too is like okay how can I act responsibly given Mm -hmm. what an intense drug that early period is like how can we also be recognizing the different phases and qualities and that we may need to notice where unethical behavior might be likely to emerge you know at times in Mm -hmm. some of those phases you know like what Mm -hmm. how people treat or if people go into resentment then they're unethical towards their date or they go into contempt or you know whatever but also certainly in the period of like falling in love many people you know, ditch their friends and don't show up to their activist obligations and, you know, do somewhere, you know, or like if they're in a relationship, like are really unethical to their other dates and fly and whatever, lots of things. Yeah, absolutely. Like that new relationship energy and how that changes the dynamics. And I think it becomes so important to think about all of that because when you are in a web of multiple relationships, that changes and affects other people so it's not like you're just affecting yourself at that point you're causing harm neglect maybe to the other relationships in your world so it like there's these other layers you have to be considering when you're making these decisions to take on a new relationship so suddenly it becomes very interconnected yeah and also if you took on a new job that might happen yes if you got sick it might happen and if you got pregnant it might happen so also not like i think the other side of it could be that we could try to i think some people also try to make open relationships secure like monogamous relationships like promise me nothing will ever change and it's just the real question is why are we also afraid of change and what would i have to do to be able to sustain the reality that I, that my desires and time and capacities will change as will my dates and like that's in the same way of recognizing like we're all going to die or we're all going to age or we're all going to get sick in different ways and, you know, be whatever, like just things change. And, you know, like that is really painful for people. And I think that like you could be in monogamy or you could be doing something else and still be trying to force things not to change. Yes, 100%. Yes, I love your preaching, like all my ideas. I always relate it back to that of like, yes, death is coming. Like the fact that we're so uncomfortable with that reality that things are going to change, I think it it does parallel in all these other ways as well of like, yes, this general unease with change. And so I feel like the answer, if there is an answer to that, right, is like, how can we learn to feel secure within ourselves? And I don't mean in some sort of like individualistic, go off into, you know, your own little recluse world, but like, how can we gain some sort of stability, trust in ourselves 
to navigate the relational fluxes that occur. And especially what you said, yes, of like monogamous people, the same thing happens. You have a new job, maybe you take on a new hobby, maybe you get a niece, maybe you get all these other pieces. I think people forget that like, these are relationships that you have time and energy that you devote to, right? Like even this podcast that I make is a relationship. I spend time creating, devoting to it, and it takes away from my other relationships, right? And so like, yes change is inevitable and all of that and at the same time how can we find the security within ourself and our interconnectedness to be able to like ride those waves of change to me that a lot of that is like oh when things change or when i believe they might change or when i'm fearing they change what's coming up like just being really aware like oh i'm i'm being activated about the death of my mother when i was 14 i'm being you know just Mm. whatever just Excuse that for me. <laughs> you yeah. know, like right, everybody's got thing, right? Like you know, people, you're activated by your parents' divorce. You're activated by your migration experience, right? Whatever, like the yes. things, other moments of loss and change that were bumpy, yes. or stories you've heard about loss and change from your family or from the culture, or stories about non-desirability that you think that loss and change me, whatever. And just being like, look, there's that, you know. And then how can I simultaneously reconnect to my actual principled belief that I want the people. I know to pursue what they need to pursue and to be well and be like on their own like healing and growth path. So that means that if my lover needs to go away to move to another town or if they need to have a baby with somebody, I'm not going to see them anymore. Or if they need to, you know, fall in love with somebody new, like, which doesn't, and and then also to have room for loss, like, like, doesn't mean like that feels like nothing, but also can I feel how that makes me sad or that's hard and also not make anybody the bad guy or like, Mm be horrible to anybody i mean just for ultimately i'm for me this like the baseline is just like can we all try not to harm each other and yeah. it, i think sometimes people think that when someone rejects them that's harm but actually people are allowed to say no to us people are allowed to say i don't want that yep. i don't want that anymore i don't want like that and like i think that there's like a real confusion in our culture between like everyone has to do what i want and mm. i was harmed mm. you know mm-hmm. and like i think that is a I don't, that comes up, I think, a lot relationally where it's like, is it okay to hate somebody because they broke up with me or rejected me? And or and or if they did it imperfectly, you know, it's like, yeah. well, yeah, they're going to do it imperfectly. And usually if someone breaks up with you or rejects you, you feel like they didn't do it right because there's mm-hmm. no way that could have not hurt. So like, how do we be a little, um, I don't know, build some self-awareness around that and then be like, okay, what do I need? The kind of security you're talking about having inside ourselves. Like to me, that's usually it's social. It's like, how do I have like enough of a support system, enough connection yes. to friends, a yes. set of activities that I know make me relax when I'm having a hard time. Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of us, it helps to like go to some kind of therapy or have some kind of practice where we get some deep reflection on our reactivity. Yeah. You know, like that, that's to me, that's what security means is like, not that I'm not going to feel the constant roller coaster of things that we all feel, but instead that I'm going to like have people to turn to, have stuff yep. I know to do and, mm-hmm. and and have like some sense like, oh, yep, I'm on the roller coaster right now. It hurts, yeah. but I don't, but I, I don't need to like take anyone down because mm-hmm. of it or like, I don't have to decide I'm bad or they're bad, but I can be like, right now I feel like I'm bad or right now I feel like they're bad. That's different than I have to make them bad, punish them or make me bad and punish myself, you know? Yeah, because it's much harder to hold the reality of both. It is so much easier to just be like, no, they're a bad person. They're horrible. That's why this happened. So, you know, fuck them and that sort of energy versus holding the duality. That's so much heavier of like, wow, the way that they just broke up with me was incredibly painful and I am sad and I am grieving all of that. And that person did the best that they could. 
and having that sort of space of like whatever that was that's how they showed up and not taking it personally because we also have to remember that everyone's going on their own journey doing the best that they can and so yeah how can you hold that duality i think that is an active practice because at least from my experience you know you have that frustration and it's hard to like hold that space take a step back and like reflect and be like no like this does hurt me that's a valid emotion i wish they would have done better but i also see where they're at yeah and like it's and like being like i can be angry yes like absolutely. anger is great can, yes. can, it's like all the feelings are okay but it's like yep. do i need to do anything do I need to try to get everyone in our circle to hate them? No. Do yeah. I need to try to get them banned from this or that space? Mm. Like just trying to be like, you know, just trying to, I think that idea, that fundamental abolitionist principle that no one is disposable, like just trying to like, I can be really mad at them. I cannot want to talk to them. It's great. You can have boundaries where you don't want to talk to people, you know, I, I yep. need space, whatever, but like, yep. do I need to take them down? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Because doing so would feel better. I'd get support from my community that would look at them in the same way. And I'd feel validated in my experience of pain that I'm struggling to validate on my own. Although most people, I would say, do not feel better when they go on campaigns against others. It's, you're never satisfied once yeah. you start trying because yeah. somebody still likes them. So, like mm -hmm. it's, it's deeply unsatisfying to campaign against someone like mm -hmm. everyone I know who has done that for various reasons. Um, has ended up feeling more isolated because because when some people won't participate you feel super rejected and then you feel like oh my god like they don't believe me because they didn't you know like it's just awful yes. like i i see it a lot just like in social movement work. Mm. it's like you know we were in a group together yeah. we were best friends or dates and then you and i like we had a bad ending and now i'm trying to get everyone to, to think you're i've got a story yeah. about how you're, you do this because you're whatever and then i'm mm -hmm. trying to get everyone to hate you and exclude you from things like i think i think that that desire to campaign is I really have compassion for it and understand it. It's like a, it's like a thing that makes sense in a culture where people are isolated and don't feel seen and heard and don't feel entitled to their feelings. And so yep. they need to yep. like try to find, like you were saying, validation for them. But I think it's really, it's one of the more dangerous tendencies in our movements that produces like mm. a kind of conflict that's really enduring where it's like the whole community has to line up. Are you on, you know, this side or that side or where, where if you don't, do what I want you to do about the pain I experienced, then now I've also got a label for you. Yeah. So I'm saying that person did it because they're sexist. Now I'm saying you're sexist if you don't do everything I want to exclude them. And it yep. just becomes these like massive, massive rifts. And it's not actually stopping bad behavior. You know, right. it's not stopping people from being like actually sexist, racist, ableist, et cetera, in our movements. Like we need some, you know, some other approaches and it feels very like it's like i think what it's, i think campaigning is what we do when we feel actually very alone. Mm -hmm. it's like very individualized you know yeah to gain people so you don't feel alone in that suffering it what's coming up for support people more so yeah. they don't feel so alone you know yeah yeah and what's coming up for me is like this idea of patriarchal othering right that is the othering like i am pushing that person out and if you align with that person you are a part of the other that is bad so that i can feel power over here and ostracize the other and i mean we see that through multiple ways that the patriarchy comes through to other various minority people and put them in this other camp that is ignoring the connection of our humanity and the need for that other person to have community as well and to grow and develop as well and have support yeah, I mean, I think it's living in a prison-based society. It's like the mm. idea that we get from childhood is like there, there are good guys and bad guys. Yes. We all want to be good guys. We all want to identify bad guys. And like doing that feels like a life and death matter. And so then, you know, I think a lot of people 
experience their internal it's very it's very subconscious like you know this like kind of like deep binary in that way and so it's like when when you're with me you're a good guy and you can do no harm and that I'm actually not saying oh hey the way you said that actually hurt that person's feelings I'm, I'm not giving you enough feedback when you're on my good guy list and when you're my bad guy list it's like you're dead you're you're canceled you're and like yeah. that emotional dynamic I think also is how we're seeing ourselves at the same time it's like oh my god I did one thing wrong I'm the worst yes. person ever yes or it's like I'm the best I'm the worst it's like this people toggle between grandiosity and self-hatred not all the time but like on on hot topic issues within themselves and like it's like, how do we, I think you're, a lot of what you're saying is like about like, how do we hold complexity and how do we have like the nuance that like, I mean, one of my favorite 12 step slogans is I'm not the best person. I'm not the worst person. It's like, mm. yeah, we're all just in here muddling around and everyone else is too. And it's not surprising that we all make mistakes a lot. And the the, qual- the qualities we need to cultivate are the ability to give and receive direct feedback, the ability to apologize, the ability to forgive. Like these mm. are profound qualities that we are terrible at because living in a prison society teaches us not to use those qualities, but instead just to like have people either on a pedestal or, you know, put them in a cage. Right. Right. And I think what you're hitting on is so important about how those then come internal, you know, I'm thinking about Foucault and how those turn those, these ideas into yourself. So then yes, you see yourself as good or bad person rather than the complex human that you are, that we all are that can make mistakes, that can hurt other people, that can be a leader, that can be so compassionate. And we can hold both because that's what it means to be human is to be able to do both and to then use mindfulness to choose how you wanna show up in the world. I think like that's where I hope we can come to that space of being able to see that duality and hold that duality. Yeah, I mean, I think I worry that some of the community dynamics in like you know polyamory or open relationships or whatever of these kind of communities we want to talk about can actually reinforce um perfectionism and shame like if we're like trying to perform it perfectly publicly and not have any of the feelings we're not supposed to have and i think that stuff can be really can just feed right into that same mindset within us um, and cause us to behave poorly like to each other and do sideways shit because we can't because we're not perfect yeah which makes sense when you're a minority wanting to be that model wanting to be that perfect you know example of what it looks like because society doesn't accept us already so let me show you the best of what it is and like i feel like some of the ways that i've seen that is like the non-monogamy poly community like talking poorly about monogamous individuals who choose that, you know, and who then come and say like, well, if you have jealousy, you need to check yourself, right? Like this, like pushback on this sense that something's wrong with you if you're jealous. I mean, also, I, if we believe in consent, we cannot judge people for being monogamous. Like we don't, I don't want to create a new, like a new society in which you're bad if you're monogamous. Like we just flip it. Like yep. the whole thing with consent is I want people yep. to actually do what they want. I want them to be celibate if they want to be. I want them to date and fuck a million people. I want them to date and fuck one person or whatever they want. You know, like the whole thing is if you if you don't feel like you're in choice, it's not going to go well. Like you're not going to have mm-hmm. the experience you're trying to have. And it's not going to be good for the people you connect with. Like, and so the idea that, I mean, the thing I've always felt about this is like, you can hurt people terribly and be wildly irresponsible in polyamory or monogamy. You can have deep, meaningful, connective experiences in polyamory or monogamy. Like, it's like, mm-hmm. it, there's neither of these it's true that monogamy is tied to a set of private property-based social relations that we want to dismantle. 
like the monogamy um, requirement is and the monogamy norm is. But the problem there is is norms, not mm-hmm. behavior of monogamy, right? And so like in our society, like choosing not to be monogamous is countercultural and can have, can feel like liberation to people in particular ways because it's like not on the menu of what's society right. accepted. And right. being monogamous can be pushed and normed. But the problem there is all the pressure and non-consent, not like like inherently choosing to have one date is not, there's nothing good or bad about it. It's just like, mm-hmm. do are people getting to find choice in it? And so the thing where we shame people for, you know, in, in any, in any subcultural context, like, you know, I've been, when I, in, when I was like really young queer scenes, we really shamed people for not, like, it was like, you're supposed to be like all the way gay or all the way lesbian. And like, it was terrible mm. that, 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 that it was like, this, you know, whatever you can, you can find ways to just like limit people's, um, to enforce norms even inside our subcultural spaces and that is not freedom you know right. the norm i do think that it's cool that in our subcultural spaces we ask people to question like wow why do i desire what i desire why do i think that i'll only be happy when i'm married and have 2.5 children and own property like i love that our subcultural spaces are places where we question our desires and where we're like desire is not you know desire com- comes off of cultural scripts and mythologies and we're going to like see if we could desire otherwise and we're going to question whether that's a questioning fat phobia and our desire questioning um, the desire for monogamy or the assumption that monogamy will make us safe and satisfied all of that yeah. is wonderful but that's different than criticizing people in a way that's like designed to shame them you know like that's just, shame is like liberation rarely comes from shame right yes if that's just going to push someone further into a space of lack of curiosity, right? When you shame someone, defenses come up. And that is the opposite of what you were just talking about of curiosity, asking questions, exploration. And so, yeah, no, shame is not going to foster that in people. So yes, if anyone hears that alone, just like try to work on letting go of the shaming of others. And I think some people want to help people expand, but doing it in shame is not the way to do that. And I appreciate what you said about like, yes, monogamy comes from like a patriarchal structure and all these other pieces. And uh, I think that's worth examining, right? Like I have nothing against people who choose to do, you know, monogamous dynamics. It's something I've engaged in at times and go back and forth in some sort of whatever feels good flow relationship anarchist way for me. And I think some of the pieces of that that I do like to call into question are like, some of what we talked about earlier, like the concept of emotional fidelity, right? Like the concept that you can't have deep, emotional, intimate partnerships with other people than your monogamous partner. That sort of stuff I call into question because I think that that sort of relating is not necessarily now about the monogamous dyad. Now we're talking about relating to your whole community. Like that inherently I think should be questioned. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I mean that that thing that I think for about how much how centrally I value friendship, but just like yep. I just I really think that like my primary belief that maybe is where I would say like the most interesting thing to me about relationship anarchy is the like the non hierarchy, the like you know like the I get to think I'll, I have all these different friends, all these different relationships, and possibly different lovers or whatever who all you know and family members or whatever who have di- or different people I want to. I don't, there's not one person I want to connect with everything about, right? Like the person I want to talk to about like my new intellectual project, maybe this person and this other person I really want to connect with about art and this other person I really want to talk about like our shared family yep. history stuff or, and like the idea that I should do everything with my boyfriend and that, I mean, it was really significant to me when my dad died that I brought my 
like dearest old friend to his funeral not my boyfriend mm. like that was who i wanted to have there and that my yeah. boyfriend like had took no offense to that like there's like like we just have a sense and feeling that there's no reason we need to do everything together or be everything to each other that illusion is not part of our relationship and that feels to me like so essential and that's and that that thing you're describing about like that that emotional fidelity that story that you should be in this community of two you know is so it makes people just so isolated and miserable. And then it makes that relationship so miserable because yes. it's like, of course you can't be all things to me. You're not like you have, we have a set of shared developing interests and then also things that are different, which is what makes us interesting to each other that we're different, you know, like it's so frustrating to see people expecting that and to see people like then move in the world only as couples, which is just like, to me, like, you know, rarely like safe or satisfying. Yeah. You know? Because dare I say, it goes against our nature. We are social beings. That is just a reality that we benefit and grow in connection with other people. And so, yeah, to close all of it down, to say the only one relationship that I'm going to find intimacy is here, that is a burden on that relationship that will like, you know, like a fire when you try to, you don't give it oxygen, it won't breathe. Okay. So like, that's yeah, exactly where I'm always at of like, regardless of whether you do polyamory, monogamy, relationship anarchy, I think one of the biggest things is like coming into more relational intimacy across all of your relationships and in whatever structures allow you to feel safe in that and secure to continue to build go for that, do that. But trying to place all of your relational needs on one person will fail. Mm. Is there anything you feel like lingering? I feel like we've had a really good conversation about relationship anarchy, challenging the status quo, what it means to be connected. I don't think so. It's really fun to talk to you. Mm -hmm. uh, I, don't, I don't often talk about these ideas in this way. Fun. yeah oh yeah i mean i could i could keep going this is what i write about so yeah it is fun to get to have like someone else who like shares the same space i think one of the things if you have more space to chat do you feel like okay yeah one of the things i find interesting about relationship anarchy is like the deconstruction of the monogamy non-monogamy binary itself what do you say more yeah i mean that mode in a binary is a reflection of the patriarchal structures that place romance and sexuality at the top. Let's say how I relate, how I define my world is going to be monogamy or non-monogamy, right? And when you take away the hierarchy, like that sort of lens doesn't even make sense anymore because then we're all non-monogamous to a degree, right? Because then we're all poly at that point because I have multiple relationships because polyamory isn't just about romance and sex that is a mononormative patriarchal understanding of placing sex and romance at the top. Once we take that away, it's a whole different world. What you're saying is making me remember something in that book, Polysecure, which I kind of read quite a while ago now, so yeah. I can't remember, but I feel like the author had like a chart that was like about kind of like how emotionally exclusive and how sexually exclusive your relationship is. Mm -hmm. And it was really cool to talk to some different friends about it and talk about like who we, uh, that a lot of people we are friends with, even if they're in sexually exclusive relationships are in really emotionally not exclusive relationships, like have really deep friendships or do, you know, have sleepovers with friends or go on camping trips with friends, do things without their date basically. And how just talking to people about like how health giving that felt like it is or how well, well-being enhancing that is for a lot of people I know um, mm -hmm. that feels different than the kind of like 
you only ever see me in the world with my date and yes. you only get to interact with me with my date. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I, you know, I've known people who, who had almost like an agreement in their relationship that they weren't allowed to talk to anybody about the relationship, like their other friends, like that to me, you can really, really like, like border on getting into like domestic violence dynamics because it's yes. like, if I'm not ever allowed to tell any of our friends, if things are hard between us and high work relationships are hard, they just are, you know, like um, this kind of like extreme loyalty that is isolating like you know that's i think the worst case scenario of that kind of emotionally exclusive relating mm-hmm. absolutely yeah it can yeah it isolates you again exactly what we we're talking about before and then yeah you have no one to bounce that off no one else to connect to and i think that's why at least the ideas for me of relationship anarchy are applicable to both right at least from what i've i've done some research and there's no academic research on relationship anarchy. There's one paper from a queer feminist in Spain that talks about the political nature of it, but beyond that, there's nothing. So a lot of this is also just like, you know, blogs, other sorts of pieces that are out there. And one of the blogs that I was reading was talking about how like, yeah, if we understand the monogamy, non-monogamy, like relationship anarchy is like this third point that is kind of like outside of that binary. And in that way, I feel like the aspects of relationship anarchy, the values are applicable to all relationships. So you could be monogamous in a relationship anarchist, and that's within the bounds, as long as you're working to do exactly what you're saying, right? Of like removing the focus, the isolation to one romantic sexual partner being your whole thing and opening up your relational world to more people. I mean, I think, you know, I think a lot of the skills we talk about in in, in thinking about polyamory and monogamy are are so applicable elsewhere. Like, you know, you know, people who are like, I have a best friend and she can't invite anyone else if she doesn't invite me. And, and others of us are like, oh yeah, I've got, I've got multiple best friends and sometimes they have a dinner party and I'm not invited. And like, it's like, that's legit. Or like, you know, if you're going to be part of this organization, you need to be loyal to us. You need to kind of feel like, you know, negative towards other organizations that do the same thing. And it's like, like that, these kinds of, you know, it's just scary. It feels just like scarcity capitalism, internalized stuff. Like, it's so heartbreaking. And most of us have it somewhere. Like most of us have that kind of scarcity or jealousy mentality occur somewhere in our lives. We see somebody else, you know, doing well at something we wish we were good at, or we right. see, or we, we miss an opportunity and see other people getting to have it or whatever, you know, see somebody else thriving in some way, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just like, can we be like, that's okay. It's okay mm-hmm. to feel that, that poor, like, what, how could I live in this culture and not feel that? especially because most of us have not gotten all the love and care and attention that we needed because we live in a culture that, you know, forces everybody to spend all their time in like terrible jobs and not, you know, caring for each other. But can we have compassion for that and not be like, I'm going to now act that out by like, you know, giving you the silent treatment because you invited someone else and not me or whatever it is, you know, like that, just like this kind of, I mean, I think this is, this is what all counterculture stuff is. Like, can I live in this society and not be of it? Can I, can I live a different way? Can I try to, can I try to change like my reactions to things Maybe I can't change my feeling, but can I change my my actions even if I can't change my feeling, even if I have some of those attitudes floating around in me or some of those like um, autopilot kind of moves floating around in me, can I still choose behavior that's based on my principles? And I think one of the things that's wild to me is that people think they can in a lot of other areas. They're like, yes, I can work to try to unlearn my racism or my fat phobia or my ableism. I can work on that my whole life. And yes, those thoughts might still come through my head or those feelings and I can keep, but a lot of people don't feel like that about jealousy. <laughs> like mm-hmm. so many people I know who are so empowered about, about feeling like they can unlearn are just like, I could never, I could never 
over my relationship because I would feel jealous. And I'm just like, as somebody who feels really jealous, it's just like a lot of other like hard feelings I sometimes have. Like, I'm just like, yeah, there goes a hard feeling. Like sometimes I feel like, you know, really frustrated in movement spaces. Sometimes I feel hopeless about our possible, how we could possibly ever have any liberation in the world we're living. There's a, a lot of really hard feelings out there and yet I endure, you know, and it's just like, and yet I still try to do things I believe in. And, and I, I'm, I'm sad a lot that I think mm. people feel so powerless specifically about jealousy and, and let it be. A, I think, I think that the story in our culture is that jealousy is intolerable. And when I experience jealousy, I find that what jealousy is telling me is I am intolerable. You must get out of a situation that makes you feel this way. And then I like to say, oh, there goes jealousy telling me it's intolerable. Mm-hmm. When I'm not feeling it, I won't feel that way. I'll be like, oh, I'm so, it's so worth it to me to have these other things I get to have because I'm trying to live this way. And also sometimes I feel the uncomfortable feeling of jealousy in the same way that like I experienced the uncomfortable feeling of people's transphobia and I've had a lot of really terrible transphobic things happen mm-hmm. to me and it's still worth it to be trans. Like I right. would not change it for anything. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like I would absolutely never go, I would never live in what seems like a very uncomfortable small box so that I could avoid, right. you know? So I just think it's like, it's just like all of our other liberation practices. Like, yeah, it's, it's, we're choosing discomfort and just knowing that you have that. Eye. So I don't think everyone needs to do that, but just but to get out of the story that I absolutely cannot, which mm-hmm. feels uncomfortable. Cultural. Yes. And I love the example you had referenced of, you know, you have a best friend that also has other friends and doesn't invite you to the party. You don't sit back and then say, well, now I can no longer have friends. You know what? Because I have jealousy and I wasn't invited. And so, you know what? To protect against that, I'm just never going to have friends again. Right. And we don't do that. And I think what you're talking about is, yes, how like the cultural script within our world is that if you have that sort of jealousy, it's a reason to not potentially open up your monogamous relationships to any other structure. And even, I mean, the emotional fidelity gets me like take off sex off the table, just like have let your partner have other deep, intimate relationships. I mean, that makes people just as much as the best friend feel inherently jealous and we work through that jealousy with best friends. Why can't we do the same thing with our partners? I think I, the word I often use for this is like aliveness. Like, am mm. I, I want, I want alive, my own aliveness to be enhanced my whole life. And I want the people I love their aliveness and all people. And so if my partner is, or my, I don't really use a partner, but if I, if, you know, sure. if my, if my, one of my dates or lovers or boyfriend or whatever or is, is taking a dance class and that's, and that's making him alive. And now I'm like, you know, feeling like, I wish I had him back on Wednesday nights or why is he, whatever. I wish I could dance or whatever. Like, can I shift from that? Or if he's having amazing sex with somebody or if he's falling in love or if he's doing a new art practice, you know, like, just like, how can I notice that sometimes someone else's aliveness feels like a threat to me and then say, but I believe in cultivating each other's aliveness. So I'm not going to follow that and try to limit and control another person. I mean, I think that, that, that drive to control is so central. I just thought of like another couple ideas from the book project that I thought might be interesting to you. Yeah, tell me. One is like, I do think it's interesting for us to notice how we are using sex, love, dating, etc. Like, if we are having, if we are having a relationship to it, that does become like compulsive. Like for me, the mm. word compulsive means that like, I feel like I can't, I can't start doing things I want that I know I want to do. And I can't stop doing things I know I want to stop doing. So like that compulsive could mean that word's kind of like um, pathologizing, but just some kind of whatever word would mean for somebody else where it's like, basically like, I really know I should 
you know, not eat a whole chocolate bar before bed, but I keep doing it like that, mm-hmm. or I yeah. really know yeah. I should, you know, um, uh, you know, do my homework on the weekend. And so that I am not, you know, up all night on Monday, but I, but then I can't do, you know what I mean? Like that, whatever that feeling is where I can't stop or can't start doing something in it. And what's really mm-hmm. going on is some kind of self-sabotage or something weird's in there. It's like a lot of people I know, and this happened at many points in my life, struggled with that around sex and love and dating. Like either mm-hmm. like, I can't say no to people if they're offering me attention. And so I'm ending up in situations where I'm, that I don't want to be in or where I'm not really attracted to this person, but I'm having sex with them or where I'm, um, or I can't stop escalating. Like I want the thrill of escalation. So even though this situation isn't ideal for me, I'm still keep on ramping it up or I can't stop lying or I can't stop downplaying mm. or for a lot of people, like I can't start, like I can't, I can't initiate, or I just, I already think of all the reasons that this person isn't good enough. Or you know, a lot of people I think distance themselves from their sexuality or yeah. are feel so unsafe in it that they prevent it. You know, it needs to be perfect or I can't have it. Or a lot of people I know, like can't stop looking at the apps or can't mm. like, just how can we both be really, really sex and dating and love and all that stuff and kink positive and acknowledge that some of us play that stuff out with this. And Mm. so one of the things I think is really complicated that I'm trying to address in the book is like, can I notice when stuff is coming out of that kind of deep autopilot place? Like I'm trying to get my sense of self through an app or I'm trying to, you know, or through social media, or am I trying to like, or I like, I'm so, I'm desiring attention so badly that I'm doing things that aren't really great for me to get it or whatever. And then, and then actually investigate what's underneath that. Like, what like what is you know for a lot of us might be childhood stuff it might be previous sexual trauma or other kinds of trauma and might you know and can I find places is there any way to cultivate practices where I can feel some satisfaction there mm-hmm. or where I can notice when I am receiving attention and care and then you know or like get it in multiple places not as like also learn to be like I can get the cuddles from my friends or I can get um you know I can whatever share mealtime yeah. or whatever the things are that I'm that I'm seeking because it's kind of like sometimes there's like barking up the wrong tree like people are trying to get everything from a date that's back to the romance myth like we were talking about like yeah. I'm trying to get all my needs met and all my feelings of satisfaction and care and love and being seen and feeling sexy from other people already that's problematic and then especially if I'm trying to do it only through sex and dating when it might be good to get some of that th- from some other sources like it can be really fun to be like my friends think I'm sexy or like mm-hmm. my friends think I'm cute or my friends uh, take care of me when I'm sick. I don't need a date for that. Or a friend will go with me to a family event that I need in company for, you know? So just yeah. try and like, I think I just wanted to like name that. Like, I think sometimes when we're in our like totally pro sex conversations, we miss that we also use sex to wreck ourselves. Like mm-hmm. we use substances and, you know, like yeah. telling ourselves sleep and whatever. Um, and so how can I be both like totally pro sex and anti-shame and let myself tinker with that balance mm. in my own expression and experience Mm -hmm. yeah what I'm hearing is like this awareness of when we're having a want uh a need that could take on different shapes right um or ignoring a want or need in terms of saying no to sex and other stuff like that like what is the thing that we're wanting right out of that dynamic I mean so I'm a sexual assault survivor and that was something that was definitely really tough for me of like being able to say no in dynamics that I didn't want and so like what was I wanting in that moment I was wanting security and so in that moment being willing to give up my own personal safety to have security in this dynamic rather than potentially saying no and facing the unknown response of the other person before me right So like, I feel like, again, it comes back maybe to that like mindfulness piece of like, 
when we're having these desires to go on the apps and like you said, like a donut, you know, like all these other, or at least that's my one. I always talk about donuts. Like I mean, you might have said chocolate bar or something. Um, but when we're having these desires, taking a moment of mindfulness to pause and try to assess like, where is this coming from? Is this the best desire for me? Is it aligned with my value system? And then being able to have that moment of autonomy that comes with the reflection, the pause to then decide how we want to show up. And obviously that's harder said than done if you're in compulsory habits that have taught you, you know, like we have neurological systems in our brain when you've done a pattern, you know, you get the dopamine and it hits. And so then just like any sort of drug or other connection, you can want to have that same sort of repeat. And so I think it, it gets really difficult when you have that repeated pattern and then to break that kind of like a drug of anything yeah to take that moment and pause and say like what am i actually craving in that moment that i'm replacing with this yeah and part of it is that one of the stories of the romance myth in our society and like mythologies around sex is that like oh my god this desire is out of control i can't help myself and so one of the ways that works is people will do stuff like wildly you know cheat on people or break all their agreements and be like oh i was shot with cupid's arrow i couldn't help it yeah and that's bullshit like we get to choose and and we are we are choosing and discerning people and and i think in the area of sexuality people will do really and that's also how people justify things like stalking others or sexually Mm. assaulting people is like i was overcome with desire like that whole rationale is actually a pro rape culture story so we want to really say no actually if I think I can't control this, what's going on for me? If I think I cannot stop. And so, I, you know, one of the things I have in the book, which I think is maybe a little controversial because it feels like it's could be understood as like anti-sex love dating, whatever, mm-hmm. is I have like a seven step process for de-escalating a crush. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes you are like, you get crushed out on someone and it's actually not the right time, place or person. Like your employee in an environment with a lot of power dynamics and it could and it could be actually that inappropriate and harassing or you realize that maybe this crush is really really hardcore and emerging because you um have some other stuff going on that you're trying to avoid but it would actually like really wreck you right now to pursue it and so you want to like not be tortured by it or be able to like admire the person and enjoy that but not have it be like an obsession whatever and i think that like just a lot of what the, the i can't remember what the seven steps are right now but a lot of them are about noticing how do i stoke an obsession and how do I turn it down? So Oof. I might stoke it by listening to the songs over and over again that remind me yeah. of the person by like looking at pictures of them again and again, or by um, remembering this thing they said to me or by making unnecessary contact with them. Like one thing I've noticed is that if I want to not, if I want to have a connection, not escalate, I need to not engage in electronic communication. I, hmm. I like, I love words. I'm, you know, so like if I am engaging in like texting or emailing with somebody and it's got a flirty vibe for me, it's going to like just go up right so like there's just things like it was like of course i want to keep escalating right but Mm. but some but even just having to like sometimes like this is not the time to escalate this thing like just so it's okay like we don't have to and there's a kind of also scarcity story about sex and love and dating in our society where it's like if you get a chance to to have some you should go after it at all you know at all costs who cares who gets hurt and so like how to, I, I would just say all this inside the container of being like pro-sex, pro-everybody yeah. having these experiences, but also like just not being, not having a belief that I'm out of control and can't make any decisions because then that can just justify like harming myself and others. You know, I think it's just, there's a lot of nuance here because we do live in a shame-based society, but I think I've been in a lot of subcultural communities where we're just like, we're so pro-sex, we're so pro-all of this that we never acknowledge 
that also it's good to have the skill to to sometimes like not do things, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when you're talking about being worried that it might be not pro-sex, I, I was thinking of, you know, other metaphors that might put it into a similar context of like, you know, like I'm pro ice cream. I really am. It's great. You know, it's delicious. At the same time, there's a point at which you've had enough where maybe you shouldn't keep going. Maybe you shouldn't open up another pint. Maybe you shouldn't go, you know, like working to de-escalate the pleasure that you can receive from that into a context that makes, you know, sense to whatever you're doing. Maybe you shouldn't eat ice cream every single day for your only meal. Like that's not necessarily as nutritious. I'm still pro ice cream. It's just like we do need to recognize that we do have control and not negate that autonomy because yeah, you're right. When you start to negate that autonomy, it is a excuse at times or people can use it as an excuse to then do unhealthy, toxic, whatever sort of behaviors through that lens of like, oh, I was just, I was couldn't control myself. The ice cream was so good. I just couldn't stop. And I think that's negating the reality. And I mean, in that context, also seeing, you know, there's people with patterns of relationships that have modeled unhealthy dynamics before. And so like you might be, we might be falling into that, myself included at times, replaying out dynamics and in that sense, feel that lack of control. But always, I mean, that's the the work, right? Like that is the work of figuring out yourself, of knowing how to have autonomy and self-control. At least that's been my journey, right? Of like, I'm always attracted to the avoidant attachment style. Like, it's not good for me. You know, like how do I use my autonomy, trust myself and go in a different direction. And I think that's all pro-sex. I think talking about the risks, informed consent, right? Like that is how we get consent. We don't negate the risks that are real. We talk about the risk and let people make that decision with that. Mm-hmm. I think also like what you just said about how you like avoidance, it's like the partner choice thing. Like we, it's really hard to feel like we have any control in that. Mm, yes. But actually, you know, it's like, I love alcoholics. Like, I mean, no one, it's like, if put me in a room, I'll find that whoever's an alcoholic in there is like the sexiest person to me. So turns out I need to find alcoholics who have become sober yeah. <laughs> because it's like, they still have that quality. They still give off that quality, but they, you know, or if, if I love people who are um, unavailable or if I love mm-hmm. people who are whatever, you can find people who have we're going to give, they're still going to give off the external shaping. Like I love people who are aloof, you Mm -hmm. know, but I want people who are aloof who actually have emotional awareness and can talk about their feelings. They may not have started out that way. If I met them when we were 25, they may not have been able to, but I want people who have done the work. And so that I still get the packaging that I find sexy, but I'm like, I have some standards. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like how much nonsense I'm going to put up with, with these things that I love. I'm no longer going to date like people who are like actively ruining their lifestyle. Oh, it's just not fun. So, and it it bleeds over into my life. So I think just like, like finding that we can also become discerning about, about the fact that we have those drives and that's different than being like, I'm totally out of control and Cupid's arrow struck, but instead like, Oh, like, like, I mean, I had a friend recently who started a relationship with someone and it was like, it seemed like there was all this potential and the, and, and realized the person like just didn't have a set of emotional skills that they needed and got out of it. And I was like, wow, I'm really impressed because most of us just don't get out of it when it, when it's going to be a painful, bad match. It's like, if you know, you need something, basically, am I going to be accountable to myself? I've learned this again and again, and yet here I am again, and I'm dating somebody who's, uh, you know, who's doing this thing that I've again and again said to myself and my friends, Hey, that always ends up being being hurtful. So just like feeling that like you're, I like what you're describing the word autonomy, like feeling like, Oh, I have enough capacity in myself to be a chooser instead of to just be like, oh, 
Cuba's arrow struck and now I'm going down this road of misery. And, you know, all my friends are like, oh God, there he goes again. You know, like we're going to be supporting Dean through this again, you know, like, and, you know, which I'm sure they would be lovely about, but you know what I mean? Everyone's so frustrated when we all just do the same things over and over again. A lot of the book I'm working on is just about like identifying the patterns, you know, Mm. and being like, is there a way to have choice i'm looking at the time and realizing i should go it's so good to talk to you i know it has been so lovely just to bounce off ideas and co-collaborate together i do have one question i ask everyone on the podcast to close and that is what is one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal i think shame shame tells you you're the only one who's like this you're worse than other people if people find out this they'll leave you mm-hmm. and everyone's feeling shame about something. And some people it's on the surface and some people it's hidden behind a, like a um, mirage of grandiosity. But like, I just, it's, and, and shame tells us to hide. It tells us don't mention this to anyone. And I found it very useful when I'm having shame to try to clear it up by checking it out with somebody I trust being like, I'm feeling shame about this. And it almost always reduces it some. So I just, I wish that like, and also, I think for years and years, a lot of things I felt I didn't identify as shame. It would have been mm. helpful if I sooner could have known, oh, that's shame talking. Right now. Mm-hmm. It's shame telling you you're too much. You shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. You have to hide this. You have to hide that, you know. And now now it's still there with me. But it's like uh, it has less power to poison, I think. Right. You have a different relationship to it. You see it now mm-hmm. and are able to respond to it. And I think that's, at least for me, this is where mindfulness always comes back, right? Like even in meditation, you get frustrated, like, why am I struggling to meditate? Like, ah, you know, and it's like, the more you engage with that, the deeper you go into that spiral rather than like recognizing the shame for what it is and taking that moment to know that now you're awake. You see it now, like, good, like, good. You see it. Now you can go in the direction that you want to go to, which is opening up to other people about it, letting go of that rather than like, why do I feel shame? It's like, okay, let's move through these emotions with compassion. And acceptance. I mean, I think also just yeah. like a lot of things are not going to change. Yep. I might feel shame my whole life. I might feel anxiety. I might feel, yes. I mean, people, you know, it's like, I just like, I, you know, I might have chronic pain. It's like, like instead of like desperately trying to figure out how not to have it, like, it's like, I'm taking, take this good care of myself. And also like, this is life with these things. These are the wounds. These things actually happened to us that gave us these wounds. And, and that kind of like acceptance, I think is so relieving as opposed to, I need to become somebody who doesn't have this damage and you know, all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Life comes with all of the joys and the pains and that's the reality. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. This has been so lovely. Is there anywhere for people that you'd want to plug so that they can find your new book, connect with you? Yes, I, my new book is not out. That's what we've been talking about today, but um, all my other stuff is at deanspade.net. Sweet, 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 sweet. But truly, it has been such a pleasure to bounce off ideas with another theorist and have this space together. Yeah, really nice to meet you. Thanks yeah. for doing this work. Of course. If you enjoyed today's episode, then leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're a part of the Anarchist community, then follow us on Instagram or nominate a guest for the show by sending in a letter to modernanarchypodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.